Jesus Christ was betrayed and executed upon a Roman cross in the city of Jerusalem on the hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago. That is a fact of history. Now, if we stepped outside and asked a few people, what do you think and feel about the cross of Christ? I wonder what sort of answers we are likely to get. I think we'll get a, a lot of different answers. I'm pretty sure those who are below the age of 20 are likely to say, mate, <laughs> I haven't got a clue what you're on about. The cross? Who is this Jesus block? These are certainly the sort of responses we get these days when we're doing a street evangelism and we encounter young people. Many of them now just don't know who Jesus is. Some people, if you ask them the question, uh, they are likely to be wearing a cross on them. Right? And if we ask them... Uh, what do you think and feel about the cross of Christ? That cross that you are wearing? Uh, they may say, well, well, I'm just wearing it because Justin Bieber wears one. Or Beyonce has been spotted wearing one. For many people, wearing the cross is just a fashion statement. Others may say the reason they're wearing the cross is because it brings luck, right? Footballers often mark themselves with the sign of the cross before they start a game um, as some sort of good luck. And of course, many from a Roman Catholic background treat the cross really just a superstition thing. Uh, we see it often, isn't it, in vampire movies. If a vampire rises, you, the, the, the cross is brought out, you know, to, waddle, to get the vampire out of the way or something like that. It's a, some sort of charm, good luck thing. Others, when they think of the cross of Christ, it fills them with deep hatred for the cross. There are many people who associate the cross with crusades and other religious wars. So actually, the symbol of the cross for them is a symbol of conquest, oppression. They hate it for that. Some people, when they think of the cross, may say, I feel pity for Jesus. This is actually how many people felt when Mel Gibson's film came out, The Passion of the Christ. If you remember that time when it came out, people turned up to watch it. Cinemas, people were crying, weeping as they are coming out. And you ask them a question, why were you weeping? They will say, well, look at what they've done to Jesus. Pity is what they felt for Christ. What about you this afternoon? What do you think and feel about the cross of Christ? What does the crucifixion of Jesus mean to you? Now, as I ask this question, some of you are thinking, oh, this is all very elementary. Too basic to think about. You have just celebrated Easter. You had a sermon this morning. Uh, you have had many sermons about the cross of Christ. So me asking you what you think and feel about the cross seems, well, I have the right thoughts about the cross. You are sure you have the right thoughts about the cross of Christ. But do you? Do you have the right thoughts about the cross of Christ? Paul writing to the Philippians warns them that many who claim to follow Jesus in fact walk as enemies of the cross. Philippians 2 verse 18 to 20 says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. 
and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul is writing the church at Philippi, it's very clear there that you can claim that you're holding forth the cross of Christ, you can even know it doctrinally, but your life may in fact say you are an enemy of the cross of Christ. You didn't just crucify Christ, you now stand as an enemy of the cross. So all of us actually, as we come to this question, we have to answer that question. What do I think and feel when I think of the cross of Christ? And that's what I want you to ask yourself this evening. And to help you do this, please turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verse 32 to verse 33. Let me just read that. And he says this, and he said this plainly, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This morning we learned... uh, that Jesus has just explained to the disciples in verse 31 that his plan is to die on the cross for us and rise from the dead, isn't it? That's what we learned in Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. That's what we looked at this morning. And we, the lesson this morning was that Christ is God's suffering as one of us, by us, and for us. This evening, we are now going to look at Peter's reaction to Jesus' words. And we'll learn this by looking at verse 32 to verse 33. Because this passage, I think, teaches us uh, about how we should think and feel about the cross of Jesus. And there are three points just worth noting, I just want to note, which are on your outline about the cross of Christ. The first thing we observe from these two verses is that the cross of Christ is offensive to people. The cross of Christ is offensive to people. By offensive, I mean people do not want to submit to the cross of Christ. They do not want to surrender to its implications in their lives. In short, the cross is foolish to them. Regardless of any wonderful things they say about it, it remains the fact that they are not willing to surrender to it, and therefore the cross remains deeply offensive in their hearts. In verse 31, as we just read, Jesus has just made clear that he has come to lay down his life for us. He has done this plainly. Verse 32 begins by saying, he said this plainly. That is, all the disciples understood what he was saying. Right? Jesus says this plainly. And he began to teach them. Let's read that again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Mark says, and he said this plainly. Jesus, like all excellent leaders, 
is preparing his troops for the difficult road ahead. None of us like a boss who just never tells us what's happening until next time you're told, sorry, you didn't know we're going down. <laughs> Your job is ended. We don't like that. We want leaders who prepare us that there'll be tough times ahead. Difficult decisions must be made. And you need to make up your mind whether you are in the boat or not. And that's what Jesus is doing here. There is a hidden question within verse 31, isn't there? To the disciples. He's saying, each one of them, are you willing to come and die with me? This is where I'm going. Are you willing to come and die with me? Everyone has to decide whether the way of Jesus, the way of Christ, the way of the cross is something they want to be part of or not. And praise the Lord that Peter understands this. It does. The problem is that Peter doesn't like it. Let's read verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I just want to point out that the, the phrase there, took him aside, is almost like Peter is grabbing Jesus roughly by the hand. He's pulling him aside. Now, in one sense, he's being, he's being a good follower in the sense that he wants to talk to the boss. But actually, the, the, the original meaning really is more like tugging Jesus by the coat or pulling him roughly to have a strong word with him. He's pulling Jesus so he can speak some sense into the Christ. And you know, interesting enough, we're told there, isn't it? And he began to rebuke him. You know, the word for rebuke is the same here, is the same word Mark uses when Jesus is rebuking demons or is rebuking the wind in Mark 4. In other words, Mark is telling us that Peter is treating Jesus as Jesus treats a demon. He's treating Jesus like Jesus is certain, really. Keep that thought in mind. So we must ask ourselves, isn't it, what has Peter found so offensive about what Jesus has said? Well, Levi Matthew, the tax collector turned follower of Jesus, is also present as this is happening. And he actually tells us the words that Peter says to Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 22. Matthew 16, verse 22, he says this, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it! From you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter is saying to Jesus, this shall not be your portion, and it will certainly not be mine. God forbid. Peter wants Jesus to confess positive things, not bad things. Not suffering. You see, the idea that the Christ suffering death the idea of the Christ suffering death is foolish to Peter. Why is it foolish to Peter? Well, it is not that, listen to this, it is not that Peter doesn't know God's servant suffer. I don't believe that. Peter, I'm sure, is aware of Ezekiel's suffering. He's aware of Jeremiah's suffering. He's aware of Isaiah's suffering. Peter doesn't believe in prosperity theology. That's not the issue. He's aware God's servants throughout the scriptures suffer. He knows the story of Job. He knows all of this. He has read the Old Testament, I'm sure. That's, so he's not objecting this as a matter of theological principle. No. Peter here is struggling with what Jesus has said because the suffering is local. It's near now to Peter. 
You see, the irony of this situation is this. Peter is a true follower of Christ. And Peter knows that following Jesus means sharing in his life, including suffering. That's the irony here. If Peter is not really following Jesus, none of this will bother him. But he's two feet in. He's a follower of Christ. He's a true follower. And he knows that if Jesus is going to suffer, I'm going to suffer. He knows that. That's the irony. Peter, therefore now, he's counting the cost. And he's concluded it is too great for me. He said, I have given up my family. I have given up my business for this Jesus. But losing my life, this is too much. This is just a step too much. I signed up for that and that. But not for that. He can't see the profit in this. And of course, what is true for Peter is true for everyone, isn't it? Because you see, friends, once we grasp what the cross of Christ truly means for us, our natural impulse is to be offended by it. If the cross of Christ doesn't offend you at, at any point in your life, then you have not really grasped its meaning. You have not really grasped what it truly means to follow Christ. Many people in churches have no problem with Christ dying for their sin. They have no problem with simply accepting Jesus as a Savior. They are happy with that. And continuing to live as they please. They have no problem with that. What most people find offensive is what Peter understands. The cross of Christ means death to my rights. Peter gets that. I must now follow Christ even into suffering. The cross of Christ says to us, you have no identity of your own except the one Jesus gives you as a forgiven sinner, saved by his precious blood. And once we understand this, the cross of Christ offends us, doesn't it? Because we understand what it demands. We understand that it means I must die to myself. I must lay down my life. I must lose myself to be found in Christ. The tragedy is that many people who profess to be saved by the cross are in fact enemies of the cross. Because they have not truly submitted to the cross. They know about the cross, like Peter. And their hearts actually have not taken up the cross. That's the problem. They are not willing to die to self and truly follow Christ. And therefore, as Paul says, they walk as enemies of the cross. So we have a deep irony here, don't we? We've got people who perhaps haven't truly understood it, right? And they haven't come to true surrender in Christ. And we've got those that have understood it, they found it offensive, and they've actually suppressed it, and have not therefore submitted to its implication. They pretend they're believers when they know deep down they haven't fully surrendered to the cross. What about you, beloved? Does the cross secretly offend you? I know you don't say bad things about the cross, but are you refusing to meet Christ at the cross? 
Are you a true follower of Jesus who's growing in denying yourself, in dying to yourself? Are you growing in sharing in the suffering of Christ? Or are you a person whose number one priority in this life is motivated with getting as much out of this life, like Peter, as you can? What motivates your choices? Because, beloved, that's the question we must ask, isn't it? And it's an agent. It's a pressing question. If sharing in the suffering of Christ and living for him is not what is driving our decisions, then we are walking as enemies of the cross. The matter is agent. It is pressing. And we must all answer it. Because if we are not surrendering to Christ, then we need to agent to repent and ensure that we are truly standing firm in life as a true follower of Jesus. Let us not be those people that find the cross offensive, but those that have found it initially offensive, and like Peter does later on, submits to the cross. So that's the first point here, isn't it? The cross of Christ is offensive to people, and there I say it is offensive to religious people, because they understand its implications. Peter is a religious man, isn't he? The second truth we learn here is that the cross of Christ is opposed by Satan. It is opposed by Satan. How will Jesus react to Peter behaving like this? Let's read verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, we live in a politically correct society, don't we? which is all about building people's self-esteem. So to many people, when you read Jesus' reaction, it's like shock horror, isn't it? How can he say that to Peter? I mean, that's so harsh. It is harsh at one level, isn't it? I think our non-believing friends would say that. They'll read this and say, what is going on here? You don't say that. The boss shouldn't speak like that to staff. Get behind me, certain. This seems harsh and cruel. This is not an invitation to let's sit down, have a cup of tea, and talk this over. Compromise here a little bit. This is a very pointed, forceful, public correction of a close friend and close disciple. No feelings here are spared. You know, the literal translation of this is, get out of my sight, Satan. Why has Jesus delivered such a stinging rebuke to a close friend, a close disciple? He has done that because Peter's house is being robbed, and Jesus has come, guns blazing, to chase the criminal out. You see, though Jesus is talking to Peter, he's really addressing Satan, who is a whispering influence behind Peter's words and actions. He says there, but turning and seeing disciples, he rebuked Peter get and, and said, get behind me, Satan. He's addressing Satan, our adversary. You see, Satan, literally the name, actually, it's not even a name. Satan is a title. It means the adversary. And our adversary, Satan, does not want our Lord Jesus to go to the cross to lay down his life for our sins, and rise from the dead to give us new life. And he's using Peter here 
to discourage Jesus doing that. Satan is opposed to the cross of Christ. Let that sink in. Satan is opposed to the cross of Christ. This should immediately raise a difficult question in our minds, isn't it? If we are thinking, engaging with the passage, it raises a very difficult theological question, doesn't it? If Satan does not want Jesus to die, why then is he also working to kill him? We know from Mark 3 that the Pharisees and the Herodians have gone away already to plot to kill Jesus. And we know eventually the Bible tells us that Satan will enter Judas to betray Jesus. We know all of this is being done at Satan's instigation. Satan wants Jesus. Satan knows the death and resurrection of Christ will mean his defeat. So he's trying to prevent it. And yet at the same time he's bringing it about. Is Satan mad? Is he irrational? No, of course. We'll be quick. Of course Satan is mad. Of course he's irrational, isn't it? He must be to rebel against God. But we have to remember, beloved, that Satan, like all sinners, is both rational and irrational. And I believe here Satan is being very much rational. Because the answer to the question of why Satan seems to be acting in a self-contradictory way, as I've thought about this issue, is that actually Satan is not acting in a self-contradictory way. The answer is that Satan's number one goal in the life of Christ is to stop Christ dying, listen to this, a sinless death on the cross. Every word there matters. Satan's goal is to stop Jesus dying a sinless death on the cross. And to do this, Satan is using two methods. The first method is simply to try and kill Christ before Christ offers himself as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. So we know from the Bible that when Christ is born, Satan gets, what does he do? He gets Herod the Great to murder all the little ones. Why, is he, why did he do that? Because Satan is hoping to stop Christ as an infant. So there can be no cross. If we can kill him as an infant, that's the end of it. There will be no Golgotha. He's trying to stop, through Herod, Christ growing up and dying on the cross for us. When that doesn't work, he tries other attempts to kill Christ, right? It does. In the scriptures, you must remember that there are many attempts to kill Christ in the scriptures. At one point, Jesus is nearly thrown over the cliff at Nazareth. Do you remember that? Luke, 28, Luke 4 verse 28 says this. Luke 4 verse 28 to 29. is at Nazareth. It says this. When they heard these things, they were at Nazareth. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Luke 4 verse 28 to 29. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. And brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. So that they could throw him down the cliff. Kill him. And verse 30 says... But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus supernaturally, just, they're about to throw him over, supernaturally just walks through the crowd, and the Lord preserves him. That's not the only attempt on the life of Jesus. We, we read of people trying to stone Jesus. At least twice we read about attempts to stone him for what he has said. So, Satan tries to kill Jesus. He really does. 
But even as Satan is trying to kill Christ, Satan is using method two. He is actively tempting Jesus to make him sin. If Jesus is going to go to the cross, he must get there damaged goods. He must get there as a sinner, not sinless. So Satan is working on that. And we have seen this strategy, haven't we? We've seen in Mark chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, Satan tempted Jesus and fell. We saw last time, using the Pharisees, he asked Jesus for a sign. So Jesus could sin by seeking man's approval. He fell there at Dalmanutha. And now we are seeing him again. The family trying to grab Jesus, by the way, in Mark chapter 3, is also another temptation. He used the family that said Jesus can give up his ministry and seek his own family interest. Satan fell there. And now he's using his close friend. Satan often uses our close friend, doesn't he? He uses Peter here to tempt Jesus to give up the cross. You see, Jesus is tempted by Satan at every turn. By the way, including through suffering. And that's important. And that's the biggest weapon he deploys. Suffering against Christ. Suffering is a temptation. Do you know what sort of temptation it is? It is a temptation to self-dependence. Because in suffering we are tempted to rely on ourselves rather than God. And I think this is the key to understand what Satan is doing here. What Satan does with the suffering on the cross. Because I see the cross as simply another attempt by Satan to make Jesus sin. Satan is hoping that by using the cross, he would force, by putting the cross in front of Christ, he would force Jesus to see the ugliness of the cross and run away from it. That is why he beats our Lord. He does all these kinds of things, put a crown of thorns on him. Because he wants to, he's pointing out to Jesus, do you really want this? Walk away now. Walk away now. And it is interesting that when Jesus gets on the cross, Satan hasn't given up trying to make Jesus sin. You remember when Christ is on the cross, Satan uses the thief to say, throw yourself, help, help yourself and ask. He has the crowd mocking. He says, if you are, he's calling on Elijah, isn't he? The crowd said. The crowd says, come off there. All of those are temptations by Satan to force Jesus to save himself and avoid the pain. But in the end, Satan's method fails miserably. His opposition crumbled. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. He achieves not just a death on the cross, but a sinless death. That is key because only by the sinless Lamb of God being slain are we saved. The sinless death of Christ on the cross means forgiveness for all who trust in Jesus. And defeat for Satan forever. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 to 14 is an important passage for us to remember. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our sins, 
How? By cancelling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demand. This is set aside, nailing to the cross. And then he has in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. This is the secret wisdom of the cross, which is Satan continuously, the powers, the satanic powers, working very hard to make Jesus sin, working very hard to put him to death, and yet in the cross, Christ triumphed over them. He disarmed them. He put them to open shame. And through that, he delivered us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. So every cross now stands as a monument for the victory of Christ over Satan. And this is why wherever the cross of Christ is preached, Satan will oppose it. And beloved, it's important we understand that the strongest opposition to the cross is not from non-believers. It is there. But in the scriptures, the strongest opposition to the cross is from the religious. People who know their Bibles. It's important you understand that. We see it in Mark, isn't it? Who are the leading cheerleaders to to stop Jesus going to the cross. Peter, his closest friend, sat under Jesus' ministry for two years, performed miracles. Judas, another lieutenant, treasurer of the Jesus committee. The Jewish Sanhedrin memorized the law as we saw this morning. These are the people, these are people who know their Bibles well. And in the case of Peter, they are even claiming to be established followers of Christ. And this raises an agent question for each one of us, isn't it? Because when I looked at this and I thought about what Satan is doing here, I asked myself a question. Chola, are you being used by Satan to oppose the cross of Christ? It's a question we must all ask ourselves. If Peter could be used to oppose the cross of Christ, all of us, are not without risk. And you must yourself ask yourself this question. Are you working for the cross or against the cross? And in the context of the local church, we must ask ourselves, isn't it? Are you being used in this church to call men and women to repentance and true surrender to Jesus? Or are you being used, or are you tired of hearing about the cross? Is your life shaped by the cross? Or are you, are you encouraging your family, your friends around to look to the cross? Or are you quiet about the cross? As, as a parent, I was very challenged because I've been thinking about this. Am I encouraging my daughter to think about the cross? Or am I quietly opposing it by being quiet about it? This is a question that Jesus is asking all of us, isn't it? Jesus is asking us, which side of my cross are you on? Are you on on my side or are you on Satan's side? Are you undermining the cross or proclaiming it? There are really only two postures when it comes to the cross. Are we proclaimers of the cross or are we underminers? of the cross. Here's the final truth we observe here. The final truth we see here is that the cross of Christ is ordained 
by God. So the cross of Christ is offensive to people. That's the first point. Second point, the cross of Christ is opposed by Satan. And the final point we see here is that the cross of Christ is ordained by God. You see, there's a risk that as we reflect on the role of Satan in putting Christ to death, that we forget the central truth of this passage. The central truth Jesus is communicating. It's in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus is saying the cross of Christ is God's idea. It belongs to the things of God. It is God who ultimately orchestrates the death of his son. And he does this from eternity past. Jesus enters the world born crucified, we might say. And there is a sense in which he is the Lamb of God, despite sort of perhaps a mistranslation, who was slain from the foundation of the world. This is the mystery of the cross, isn't it? People and Satan put Christ to death, but it is God who acted in and through their sin for his sovereign purpose. And Peter later on understands this mystery after the resurrection of Christ. In his first sermon, he declares boldly to the nation of Israel. He says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to verse 23. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Who killed Christ? Peter answers, he says, We put Jesus to death by our free evil choices. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God nailed his son to the tree for us. It was his love that nailed him there. Even as we also say, it was our sins that nailed him there. We must hold both truths to be true. The cross of Christ is a work of God from the beginning to the end. And through his cross, he has granted us forgiveness for our every sin and life with God forever. Beloved, as I said this morning, I said, sometimes we forget just how wonderful it is to be a follower of Jesus. And the reason we do that is that we forget the wonder of the cross of Christ. We forget that because Jesus has died on the cross for us, if we're truly trusting in him as Lord, we have been declared right with God by the cross. We forget that once we were at war with God, by the blood of his cross, because of the blood of his cross, we are no longer enemies with God. We now live with and under the Prince of Peace. We forget that once we could not approach God because God is too holy, but now the precious blood of Jesus is a sacrifice that has wiped away your filth. Every single one of them. 
we forget that Satan has got nothing on us. No matter how much we fail or sin or what our weaknesses are, he has nothing on us. Because if we're in Christ, we stand forgiven at the cross. We do not need to fear to approach God our Father anymore. The blood of Christ has not just cleansed us. God the Spirit lives inside our hearts. As we've been learning in 2 Peter, we now share in the divine nature. And because we share in the divine nature, His divine power is at work in and through us. And every day we are growing in holiness. Every single moment we are becoming more and more like Jesus until we see Him face to face. We forget that. We forget that because of the cross of Christ, we have already crushed Satan under our feet. And now we stand safe and secure. And Christ is bringing us safely into the new heavens and the new earth. Regardless of your circumstances this afternoon, we forget that the cross says to us, God is working all things for his glory, even in our failures like those of Peter. Ultimately, the cross of Christ conquers all, and he does it for us. We forget that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we know that nothing will ever separate us from his love in Christ because of the cross of Christ. One day the process of salvation will be completed and in sinless bodies, free from change and decay, we will finally see God. What a statement. No one has ever seen God and lived. And yet we shall see him face to face. Never again will we suffer because of the cross. Never again will we sin because of the cross. Never again will we be tempted to live for ourselves because of the cross. And never again will Satan use and abuse us because of the cross. And that's what we should think when we think of the cross. The question is, what should we think about the cross? That's what we should think. What should we feel I think that's an important question. What should we feel about the cross? Feelings matter. What should we feel when we think of the cross? I ask myself that question. (sighs) We should feel loved. We should feel wanted. We should feel satisfied. We should feel safe. We should feel hopeful. Because of the cross. We should feel we are in the arms of Jesus. And perhaps you are in that season now where you are facing struggles in some area of your life and you are finding it hard, beloved, to focus on the Lord Jesus. You are finding it hard to think of Christ. What does the cross say to you? Well, the cross says to you simply this, it does not depend on you. Stop focusing on yourself. Christ is focused on you. We don't need two people. Stop focusing on yourself. Christ is already focused on you. Focus on that. Focus on the fact that Christ is focused on you. And let that thought move your eyes to the cross. In life and in death, in health and in sickness, lean all your weight on this amazing reality that God in Christ has died on the cross and risen for you. It is finished because the Messiah has died. 
For may the Lord keep all of us from being offended at the cross of Christ, or being used by Satan to oppose the wondrous Christ, the wondrous cross on which our Prince of Glory died, and then rose from the grave for us. May we grow into a family of those who delight in what Christ our God has done for us. I have only one prayer, one goal for this fellowship, is that we may be a church that truly focuses on the cross. That the cross would shape everything we do. That together as brothers and sisters we may daily take up the cross to follow him. And above all that we may rest on the cross. It's not about us. It is about the cross. Amen.